0: Before we start this show, just a word from our sponsor. 20 by 20 Apparel. Founded in 2015, 20 by 20 Apparel brings original tributes to pro wrestling's classic arenas, moments, and events. They look to spotlight like the bloopers, bleeps, and body slams along with the biggest, smallest, strangest, and strongest that pro wrestling has had to offer. Along with their awesome line of pro wrestling apparel, they do offer many services. In the world of wrestling, there are hundreds of shirts, promotions, flyers, social media accounts, and ads. Don't get lost in the sea of parody shirts and display fonts. They can provide professional graphic design services at a reasonable price. 20 by 20 also hand screen prints all the tees in-house. If you would like to discuss possible run of tees, posters, koozies, foam fingers, or whatever... Drop them a line. Go to 20 by 20 apparel. That's the number 20 X, the number 20 apparel.com. Now, let's get to the show. is the word
1: I'm Jim Duggan, got long wood for plenty hoes I keep it fresher than fresh, but you already know You suckers bummy, I'm money, I got a ton of flows My weed loud like a motherfuckin' thunder roll Your shit quiet like you ballin' on a budget though We see your kicks and we laugh and yellin' what it goes. You see me shinin' like a suit on puffy You know my grind and shit is too strong, buddy That's why the dude call money I be stuntin' like it's nothing at all Cause it's nothing to me, it's probably somethin' to y'all Tryin' to smoke like me, then come and fuck with your dog Got a closet full of kicks, you can't cop it them all And i pressure fresher than the freshest, you can tell it's in my essence Bitch, you see the way I'm rapping yes, I do this shit to death Until tell I'm running out of breath, or tell somebody cut a check But either way, you know it's fresh, But either way, you know it's fresh Fresh, mm. we
0: fresh Welcome to the Fresh of the Word Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly K. Fresh-Fraser. It's episode 100. It's here. What a landmark episode. And for this landmark episode, I wanted to get someone special. Someone whose work has been important to me over the years. After contacting a short list of names, I landed on two people that would fit the part. First, Brooklyn hip-hop legend, Master Ace, who will be on this episode and then also Detroit techno pioneer Carl Craig, who will be on the next episode, episode 101. It's been almost three years that I've been doing Fresh as the Word. I never knew what would become of it or how long it would last. I'm at least happy that I got to 100 episodes and and I'm still trooping on. There's much more room to grow, I do know that, and I hope episode 100 will be like the newest jumping off point into this next phase of the show. I really do have so many people I would love to thank for their help along the way. But there is just like way too many to name. I'll probably just tag them all on Facebook. <laughs> so so check. <laughs> yeah, so check on Facebook. This is only the beginning. So let's uh, let's get on to, you know, the the guests for the show. During my chat with Master Ace, you know, we talk about a lot of things in regards to his hip-hop history. And how he's influenced other MCs. And we talked about his effect of his 2001 album, it is disposable arts, and how he's been able to sort of maneuver throughout his hip-hop career, being a part of so many eras and generations of hip-hop. So without further ado, let's get on to my interview with Master Ace. When you know when anybody thinks of you know Master Ace, probably you know one of the guys who File under your favorite rappers, favorite rapper. You've been very influential to so many people. Kind of looking back into your career, how does it feel to be so influential to so many MCs out there?
1: To be honest with you, I don't know. I mean, there's a few names, there's a few artists that have, you know, either mentioned me or said to me personally that I was, you know, one of their influences or somebody who that you know had an impact on the music they were making but it's not really a lot of people um at least they don't at least they keep it to themselves it's, um <laughs> i'm usually one of those one of those artists that's not going to be mentioned by the average cat um just because of um, you know i don't have a whole bunch of platinum records but um it's cool for those that have said it to me you know uh Cats like Eminem, of course, but even like lesser-known cats that just were coming. I remember in the '90s, early, very early '90s, um, you know, Q-Tip and and, and Fife speaking to me about uh, loving some of my early music and that they energized them when they were first starting out. Right. And at the time, they, we, you know, we we were peers. Obviously, Tropical Quest is has gone on to become, you know, icons in hip hop, but you gotta look back to when we were all just brand new first starting out. And to hear those kind of words is always gonna
0: be a cool thing. Yeah, you're you're somebody who, you know, came from the from the eighties, you were part of the Juice crew. You you know, in the nineties, very much a part of that golden age of hip hop, and then with the new millennium, you had sort of, you know, what I've seen online, you call your new beginning with disposable arts. How do you feel like you were able just to go from each one of those decades and be relevant?
1: Um, to to be honest with you, it's, it's because I feel like I still had something to prove. And um, just like a new artist coming out uh, for the first time, he's out to, Kind of prove to the industry that he deserves to be there. Prove to other rappers that he's a good rapper. You know, uh, prove to the label that they made a good decision in signing him. Whatever the situation is, but he had that. he has that. You have that chip on your shoulder, and um, I feel like I've always carried that that chip. Like I was a new artist, underappreciated. No, nobody knew who I was. Nobody really was respecting what I was doing, and some of that is you know uh, false motivation because obviously there was fans out there that liked what i was doing but i sort of psyched myself up by saying that nobody liked what i was doing nobody was checking for me nobody was feeling the music that i was making and that's one of the ways that i was able to keep my edge and you know keep making records that sounded fresh and hungry and new and aggressive and Um, I just really felt like I didn't get my due. And so that, that motivated me not getting my due or maybe, you know, people say I'm one of the most underrated artists. Maybe, maybe that in and of itself was a motivation for me.
0: How important do you feel like it is to, to keep that competitive edge over the years? And do you feel like hip hop MCs, hip hop artists these days still have that competitive edge?
1: Um, nah, the competitiveness, I don't see it as much, um, if they're competing, it's just for sales, it's just for record sales or likes or followers. That's the only real ways that I see the newer generation of artists competing. I don't feel like they're competing for lyrical, you know, skill. I don't think it's about that. I think it's just about, oh, I sold this many records um and it's unfortunate I, I wish that it was still competitive in that way also like you know in the golden era 90s or whatever performances were made very competitive artists were yeah. we were all trying to outdo each other on stage even if you went you know especially if i went before you i wanted to make sure that i tore it down <laughs> so badly that it was going to be difficult for you when you stepped on stage and you had right. to raise your level just to follow me, and that's that was the mentality that we all had, you know, back in the '90s. Um, I still carry that same that same competitiveness with me, but I don't think it exists as much um, with the newer artists.
0: Yeah, back in the '90s, there used to be, you know, used to have albums that now we deem classic coming out almost like on a weekly basis. And everybody kind of yeah. knew who who had albums coming out what sort of uh competitiveness did that bring out knowing who else was gonna bring up put out an album around the same time you were thinking
1: well you got to remember when you're living it when you're in the middle of it in the midst of it you don't know what's classic and what's not like yeah it takes it takes ten years before you realize wow like that was a classic album like but at the time you know, I, you know what the perfect example of that is is Nas' Illmatic, you know. It's that's a undeniably a, a hip hop classic, right? Uh, but at the time, but but at the time that it that it came out, there were there were some circles that were saying it was not successful because uh-huh. um, it hadn't reached. It, it struggled to go gold, like it was squeaking along, trying to. It took like a year to go gold, right? And meanwhile, like you know. On the West Coast, they were dropping albums. Their things was going platinum in four weeks. And um, so, like, in in that same, um, you know, environment, Illmatic, people were kind of like, oh, maybe it's not all that. Maybe it's not this, not that. And, you know, New York was bumping it crazy, but it took, it took time. You know, it took Nas' a second album, really, to come out it was written was what I think pushed Ilmatic gold. Right. Um, I could be wrong about that, 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 that detail, but I think, I think Ilmatic went gold a couple of years, maybe two or three years after it um, came out, if it finally went gold. Now it's probably certified platinum now, but I'm just saying, um, you know, you don't know necessarily what, is a classic when you're in the midst of it. It's not until years later. When I dropped Disposable Arsene 01, it was kind of like, okay, this guy put out another album after all these years. And there weren't really that many people really paying attention to it, but it snuck into you know, the fabric of, of, of hip hop fans and into their bones and into their bloodstreams. And talk about that album now, you know, so many years later, Everybody's like, yo. I remember when that came out. Man, that I didn't realize it, but that was a classic album.
0: Yeah, Man. yeah.
1: It's um that's how it is. It's hard it's hard to know when you're in the middle of it, living it, what it is.
0: Between you know, between when Disposable Arts came out in O one and before that, um the previous album was sitting on Chrome, correct? Yep. Those were almost like two different eras of how the music business ran. You know, from your perspective, how did it look from your um, from your end?
1: Well, you went from vinyl and CDs being um, really ruling the day, and that that was what generated most of the sales in '95. In '95, we were still putting out cassette singles, right? Um, those were those were still a thing because um, by the time 2001 came around cassettes like you couldn't find cassettes really like nobody was it wasn't it wasn't worth it for labels to spend the money to put out cassettes because nobody had cassette players anymore and and um all of a sudden the digital age started happening and um you know when i recorded when i recorded um sitting on chrome i was in a big studio recording on a a two-inch tape machine, like on actual tape. By 2001, they had these machines called ADATS, which was like these little tiny digital cassette things. And um, you just saw like this major shift um, from from that album to Disposable Arts. So many things. All of the record stores, like the Big Tower Records, all those stores started closing, going out of business record label started shutting their doors left and right um it kind of ushered in um the uh the time where artists are now going in the studio and recording 40 songs in order to pick the songs for the album in 2095 when i made this sitting on chrome every every record that i recorded was intended for the album like there wasn't any Throwaways. There wasn't any. Everything had a specific purpose. The album wound up being too long, so I think we held off two or three songs because it just was too much music. But just the idea of, you know, you are talking about, you know, six years uh, to 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 now in '01 in an era where dudes is like, oh yeah, I'm going to studio, I'm recording four songs a day, and and so like how much how much real thought could be could go into rhymes that that you're writing on the day on the same day and going in the booth and recording four songs it's just it's not possible and, and, and it just seems like it seemed like the the amount of thought the amount of energy the amount of time put into the music that was being made um became less and less and it just became more about uh the single that that one big single that had that had a cool hook and if you could sell a million copies off that one single, then, then you were a success.
0: Do you feel like it turned in more of a, the, the music turned into more of a commodity than an art during that time?
1: Um, during which time?
0: Uh, when, when you were putting out disposable arts, when it's the beginning of the 2000s, do you feel like more people were just sort of, you know, maybe just doing content? Or just you know yeah. figure it out the best way of making money in regards to yeah it, it was just it, the, was, it was it was
1: yeah. it was it was almost like um, volume volume over quality you know um, I, I I think I think about this uh, this graffiti documentary that came out like in eighty three eighty two eighty three called Style Wars okay and um, there were two different graph art there were there were two groups of graph artists. In the uh, in the documentary, um, there were the guys that were the artists that were spending two hours in the train yard painting this beautiful, big, colorful masterpiece covering the entire train, and then it was an- the other side was the bombers, and the bombers. All they did was do a quick throw up, like it took it took them what two minutes maybe to put up a throw up yeah oh and 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 they and they went through the train yards and they would they would find these masterpieces these beautiful you know pieces of art that took somebody two hours to make and in two minutes they were they would completely destroy it by putting up a quick throw up and covering it up and so it was kind of there was that battle between the two forces the two types of artists, the, the, the bomber artist, who was all about, I remember the the guy's name was cap. He was the main one that was going over everybody and they interviewed him. And he's like, to me, it's all about, you know, more having the most. It's like, what's more important? Having, having your name up on 50, the next 50 cars, train cars that go by, or one big burner on one car on every, you know, 25 car trains that go by. For him, it was all about quantity, and, you know, that that was like a real uh, con between the two groups, um, and so I, I, I just feel
0: like I'm more of the graffiti artist than the bomber. Do you feel like, at you know, during those times that you felt like there was all these bombers in hip-hop, and that maybe the you know, your audiences, the audience out there would sort of gravitate to those bombers that you see their name everywhere and feel like, hey, maybe they're more popular because I see their name everywhere.
1: That's what happened. I mean, that's absolutely what happened. And it it became uh for the for the for the fan, it became um like easy consumption. Um much easier. Just you hear it the beat catches you. The chorus catches you. You can dance to it. I, I I understand what he's saying, and it 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 creates a moment, and then I'm good. I'm on to the next thing. Um, with with the music that I was making, there was a real you had to have a real commitment to the project, not just this one song, but the project, the story that's being told on the album. The, sequence of the songs the skits in between it was an experience so it's like if you want to use a television comparison it's like do you want to watch a 30-minute sitcom where you know it comes on you get a couple of laughs in 30 minutes eat, eat, eat a snack in 30 minutes you're done you're on to the next thing or do you want to sit down and watch a two and a half hour movie that has all of this great acting and all of these you know, highs and lows and emotions and, and and you know, incredible uh, filmography. And so that's really what it comes down to. A lot more fans were happier to get that quick consumption where there's not this big time commitment. I don't have to sit here and listen to the whole project to be entertained. I can just listen to this one song and keep it moving. And, um, you know, that there's there's room for everything. There's room for everything. There's, there's, I'm for the fans that want to watch the two-hour movie, and 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 that's what I, that's who I make my music
0: for. During these times when there's so much quick consumption, how do you sort of swim the waters of all that to be able to still be making music here in 2018?
1: Um, I just stick to, I stick to what I know. I stick to what feels good to me. I stick to what I would want to hear as a fan, um, and I make projects that reflect the way I would want to be entertained as a fan. Um, and, um, you know, that's why it's tough for me sometimes to listen to a lot of albums when there's no, uh, there's no real thought put into the songs, the sequence of the songs, the order of the songs, each song kind of kind of stands on its own, has its own, you know, uh, moment in time. And you can listen to that one song and get a quick message and be on to something else. Um, I mean, that's just my take.
0: Do you think that, um, just the history of rap music has been good with sort of transitioning to new generations, meaning like, these days, you might have some of the new rappers who don't really know about the history, or might talk shit about the uh, the past, and then you have some of the old heads where they you know they might talk down on the, the the newer generation. Do you think that there's been a good transition between the generations, and is there a way that it could you know be improved on to where history gets passed down between new uh, new generations?
1: That's a tough one. It's tough um, because. You really need each each young young man um, that likes hip-hop, listens to hip-hop, um, is going to be influenced more by the people that are his age, the friend, his friends, the people that are around him. Um, typically, kids that are 18, 19, 20, they kind of view their parents as corny. <laughs> and we, we probably viewed our parents the same way. <laughs> um, so it's almost like not cool to like what your parents like, um, unless you were trained by your parents at a very young age that, you know, this is what real music is. Um, and they were playing it around the house all the time. That's different. That, that That's who my mom was. So my, my, my mom, my uncle, my mother and my uncle, they, they played Earth, Wind and & Fire and Ohio Players and Gil Scott Heron around the house while I was coming up in hip hop. They didn't really understand hip hop or rap music. Um, it was kind of more of a youth movement to them. But because I was exposed to the music that that they had from the 70s um, and even the 80s, it kind of helped me to appreciate what came before hip-hop and so in that same way it would really take for parents people my age a little older a little younger um to be exposing their children to tribe called quest and de la soul and music music like that um my daughter's 13 years old now and i've exposed her to some certain songs that mean something to me but I feel like I could have done a much better job of, you know, playing music around the house, um you know, in the car. I you know, as as adults, as as parents anyway, we kinda typically we'll just kinda acquiesce to whatever keeps the kid quiet, whatever <laughs> keeps them calm. You wanna listen to you know the the wiggles, go ahead, listen to the wiggles. <laughs> that keeps you calm. And so you know, I'm guilty of it, you know, as well. Um, she does know some artists. She's aware because of who you know, because of myself and my and my wife with hip hop heads, um, but she also has her her generational stuff that she that she listens to and that she uh, that she likes as well. And I don't I don't want to be a tyrant and be like, oh, you shouldn't be listening to that. I don't want to be I don't want to walk around the house like being <laughs> this grumpy, you know. Uh, old dad who doesn't understand the new sound or whatever so i kind of let her kind of do her thing the same way my mom kind of let me do my thing and and the appreciation of other kinds of music and stuff will seep through it will seep through it will it will it will have an impact and i think when she's in her, by the time she's in her 20s or something i think she'll know more hip hop more generational hip hop
0: than most kids her age do you feel that, you know, hip hop has a place of especially with the newer generations that come to be able to for these newer artists to learn from the history, more in regards to the mistakes that have been made? Cuz you still have artists who are getting arrested, getting into fights, getting killed and it just seems like it's a almost like a continually full circle that keeps on going on and on. Is that a thing that hip-hop can learn from itself, or or is that just something that's more based in the socio-economical places that these artists are in currently?
1: It's definitely more socio-economical than anything. Um, Whether these people are artists or not, these, these things are happening in their neighborhoods. You know, gun violence and alcohol abuse and drug abuse and... Domestic abuse; those are just parts of our society, ugly parts of our society that young people are exposed to, whether they're rappers or not. It just so happens that if a rapper gets is a victim of gun violence, you know, we hear about it. It makes the it makes the uh, the blogs, the headlines, the people talk about it. Um, but for, for every You know rapper that's that happened you know that like xxx tentacion for every when when he got killed that was a terrible tragic thing but in the days leading up to him being killed there was probably 50 100 kids that got killed in the same way in the same way uh, totally different situations around the country And, and probably a bunch after him that nobody's talking about um other than that local local news station so It's, um, it's more of a, uh, it's more of a product of our society and what's been going on in, in, uh, in urban America and just America in general. But, you know, gun violence is a terrible, terrible product of what this country has become.
0: Yeah. Hip hop has always been sort of like that, you know, is always told what's going on in the streets Always oh, been sort of like that news reporter. does hip hop still do a good job of talking about those other cases, those other kids that get killed, or those other sort of you know domestic violence, other things that happen on the streets. Do you think hip hop is still doing a good job with addressing these issues?
1: I think the issues are being addressed in music all the time. The question is, is that music being played on the radio with the same? Uh, at the same rate that they're playing Migos and Cardi B and records like that. That's what that's where the problem lies. It's not whether or not the music's being made, because it's being made, but the people what our community hears on the radio aren't willing or aren't interested in playing that music. They tell us, oh, the kids don't want to hear that. But we know from the 90s that when Public Enemy and X-Clan and, you know, KRS-One BDP were making this positive music, Poor Righteous Teachers were making this positive music that spoke to young urban America, it was on the radio, we were listening to it, we knew the words to it, we went to the clubs, we went to the concerts, and we rocked out to it, and that was the balance that Hip hop had at one point. Um, now the agenda seems to be a lot different, and all of that positive music that's still being made seems to now be suppressed, and it's not as exposed to our young people. You have to almost be a miner and dig and search the internet and yeah. you know f- to find this positive music. It's out there, but if we're relying on you know Radio One or Clear Channel to push those messages through to our young people, they don't seem to be interested in doing that. And, you know, that's, that's the unfortunate part, but you, you only have to look, for, you, you look high enough up that, uh, up that ladder and you'll, and you'll find out who exactly is making those calls.
0: It does seem like it is, does seem like it that is a big myth that, that people don't want to hear that stuff on the radio. When you look out to all of the, the, the peaceful protests that are going on in America for um, whatever is the you know the new issue or new incident that's happening that we got to you know people got to do that over and over again. You have people going out and protesting and letting their, making their voices heard. So you can't really tell you know people that people don't want to hear that stuff. It's like people want to hear that type of stuff. And like you said back in the day, you had like the public enemies that people really enjoyed listening to and it uplifted them. So that is definitely a big myth, I think. It's absolutely a myth. So when you go back to um I remember when Disposable Arts came out, like all of us, you know, hip hop heads at the time were like holy shit, this is such a good album. And this is kind of like like I said, like almost, it was like a new era of, of hip-hop, um, there was a lot of artists, you know, going the independent route during that time because let's say about four years before that was when there was sort of, it seemed like there was a break where, you know, people who were on major labels were no longer on major labels. The major labels were having more of a, you know, a stronghold on hip-hop, you know, marketing it the way that they wanted to. But it was great to see, like, to hear you know that album. It was it was so good, it was so poignant. And then if you just think about it, seventeen years later, people still lo- love that album. You know, what's you know what's your thoughts about that particular album and how it's like over the years has meant so much to so many people?
1: Well, it's my favorite. It's my favorite album of mine that I made um, because it was. It came from probably the most honest place um, that it could come from at that time. What I was going through um, was a lot going on in my in my mind, in my heart. There's was a lot happening. Um, the year before, I had been diagnosed with with MS, and I was already kind of At the point where I figured that my music career was done that fans weren't uh, interested in hearing anything else from me and um, I I just didn't think that there was anybody out there who cared what I did musically and that diagnosis kind of rejuvenated me and I went on tour I did a tour a 13-city tour in um, in 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 the UK, in the United Kingdom. There was actually a couple in the UK and a couple in Germany, and uh, I came back from that tour and realized that there were actually still people out there who cared what I was doing, and that's what put me back in the studio with with this kind of renewed commitment to doing some more music and. It was the first time I wasn't attached to a, a major. Um, I didn't have the influence of any record executives telling me what kind of music to make, what kind of tempos the songs needed to be, who should be doing the hooks. Those those are the kinds of things that I had really reached kind of my breaking point where I felt like if I had to deal with all of this talk, from people who didn't actually make records, if they were gonna be the ones trying to you know drive the car, then I would just rather stay home. Um, but 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 once I was realized that I could actually go in the studio and just just literally do the exact record that I wanted to do, I felt like it was gonna be a great way to go out of the game. I thought that was gonna be my last album, so I felt like this is gonna be I'm gonna go out on my note on my on my terms. Disposable is going to probably be the last one, but at least I'm gonna. When it's all said and done, I can't blame anybody else. I can say, it is what it is. Let the chips fall where they may. But this, I'm gonna make the, every song, every hook, every skit, every lyric, every feature is gonna be exactly the way I envisioned it. And then let the chips fall where they may. And that's and that's what happened. And um, because of that album. I mean, solely because of that album, my career has been extended now 17 years. Um, it's amazing um, that that I've been going this long, and it's all fueled by that one album. So my favorite will always be my favorite in my catalog. I have a, a special place for that album in my heart.
0: Yeah, it's kind of crazy that all those years, you know, dealing with uh, being on... Major labels, having exposure on MTV, being on TV raps and stuff like that, that it's, it all kind of comes down to being able to just have freedom to breathe and make art that uh, sort yep. of rejuvenated your life and your career. And it, it brought the best out of
1: me. Musically, it brought the best out of me. Lyrically, everything.
0: How important do you feel like, you know, for any artist that having sort of, that freedom to breathe, you know, goes into making good music.
1: It's everything. It's everything. Um, You can't make, you can't make music from a place where people who don't rap, who don't produce, are telling you what you need to do or how you need to do it. Um, and when you're making records from a, from a, from a position of pressure, they're never going to be the right records. Um, I think every song needs to be made from the heart. And, and, and when you start making songs with your mind, that's when you run into trouble. You start, you start uh, trying to come up with formulas. Well, we need to have a record that sounds like that and that talks about that. And then it's all formulaic. And you might get lucky and get a hit out of that. But more likely than not, it's going to fall on deaf ears. And then you're not even going to have your fan base anymore. So I think that position of freedom, being able to go in a studio, on your terms and create what you want to make brings out the best in every artist.
0: Yeah, I feel like, you know, a lot of in looking back, I feel like a lot of times when people thought about those formulas to try to make hits or have hits that land that sometimes artists have chose the wrong singles from their albums and there's been times where I feel like, oh my God, you just missed an opportunity for that song to be a single, and that might have been a hit single, but the only reason why you didn't choose it as a single is because it's kind of like a similar tune to the first single that you had. That's right? Where I'm like thinking you should have just went with what was kind of like the best instead of like we need to put out this record and then this type of record, then this type of record, like that. I looking back, I felt like a lot of that, a lot of those formulas were just real bullshit.
1: You hit it right on the head. They were, and a lot of artists f- fell for the okie doke. Um, a lot of us did.
0: When I look back to your career, and when I think about all the albums that you put out, what I liked about you is you're from Brooklyn, but like you don't have a, you never really had a sound that was just distinctly New York. You kind of went in all these different routes. Because you if you listen to like Born a Roll or the INC ride, that definitely had a West Coast feel to it. Like how important was it to sort of keep that sort of, you know, sound open, that variety open? And do you feel like it was needed for any artists, or do you think it was kind of bullshit to to harp so much on having a particular regional sound?
1: I mean it the idea that you had to sound like a specific coast or a specific region is what kind of got hip hop into the trouble that it got into. Right. You know, in the, in the, uh, in the mid late nineties. Um, and, you know, I definitely was right in the midst of that. Um, cause New York was definitely not happy with me when I, uh, when I started getting all this radio play in California and, Texas and you know, in the Midwest, um, it was almost like you had to pick a side, you know, you with us, you with them. And, um, I don't know, I, I feel like hip hop at, at that time, anyway, kind of suffered a little bit from it because of it. Because, um, there could have been a lot of other really cool music that that could have been made, um, by different artists from different places. Had hip hop had a little bit more tolerance to the 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 uh, the mixing of sounds, the the experimentation of of sound and a vibe, and um, you know, it's 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 different now. Like you can really, I mean, all these New York kids, these new young New York kids, they all sound different. Like they're, they're always making records that, Sounding like trap music from the south, and <laughs> that was their, that was kind of their sound. But clearly, clearly, there's no uh, there's no rules anymore. I just think there's nothing more, wrong with regional music. I just think that um, people need to know. Like when I made "Born to Roll," like I knew exactly, you know, what that was gonna, what type of audience that was gonna grab, the sound of it. Uh, even though the record I sampled was a East Coast record. It was a Def Jam on a Def Jam label. It was original concept, it was a straight East Coast record, but it was a it was kind of a throwback sound. But I knew that the 808s, 909s, that, that drum, those drum sounds were were really resonating with other markets, not just the West Coast, but the Midwest and the South. Yeah. And so it was a no brainer to sample that um that record and make that song or remix that song, but You know, um, I still knew what New York drums sounded like, and I had joints on my album that were inherently New York feel, New York vibe to them, and it's like the the newer artists now from New York, they don't even know what New York's sounding music is. Like, if you want to experiment and do a record that sounds like a trap record, that's one thing, but... When your whole project sounds like that, and you don't have any connection to any other sounds, and you're from New York, that that's when it becomes a little bit of a problem. You got You got. You got to be able to. You got to at least know it all. You can't just know one thing and just make one thing.
0: Right. Recently, I was you know I was reading on your um, on your Twitter page, and I saw that um, like that, there was talk about how in the, the new movie, sorry, sorry to bother you, that or that Detro- happened today, yeah, yeah, the Detroit character has those earrings that say murder 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 kill kill kill, and that it, the discussion came up about where that came from, and it looked and you said that you were originally the one who said that, and it was a parody of what the gangster rap, uh, what gangster rap was at that time. You know, how do you feel right. like that this kind of like you know came full circle? And sort of those words are kind of being used again, like a parody of something.
1: Um, I haven't seen, I haven't seen the, uh, the show. Is it a cool show? I haven't, I I still
0: haven't watched the, I haven't seen the movie yet either, but I was just Oh, it's a movie. Yeah, it's a movie. I
1: thought it was a TV show.
0: What's it called? It's called Sorry to Bother You. Sorry to Bother You? Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, I think that's cool. Uh, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't add up to any checks or anything coming my way, but it's just cool. It's just cool that um. You know, you'd be surprised like who. Who's listening, and who has grown up, and are now in their forties and fifties that were kids when you were making records that you were making. Um, you could bump into somebody on you know waiting for a flight. Looks like the most buttoned-up business guy, you know, is riding in first class or whatever. And uh, come to find out, like when he was 18, he was rocking to disposable arts, and you're like, wow, like imagine that, like that's crazy, like. But these are these are the today's adults now, and a lot of them connected to um, hip hop in one way or another, and it was influenced. Musically, for for them in their lives in some way, maybe that writer, or that director, or whoever was responsible for putting that in the movie, maybe that had an impact on him in some way. When he was, who knows where he's from? He might be from, you know, he might be from St. Louis. I remember. I believe it was it was it, much...
0: it's a uh, Boots Riley from the Coup, like that. Uh, that did that movie.
1: Oh, it's it's oh, it's oh, okay, 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 it's, okay. I didn't realize that's who, that's his, that's his joint. Okay, yeah. well uh I believe he said that spice one or somebody else had said that same lyric um before me or something like that which is very possible I'm not aware of it um and, and mine you know I didn't I didn't hear those records and oh let's put this in our record like that's not how we did that's not how we did things back then right but that was a vibe and that and that was the kind of stuff that was being. You know, shouted. I would actually like to hear that that Spice One record. Or he named two other two other he named two records that apparently uh, said that phrase before my Slaughterhouse album in '93. Which I'd, I'd like to hear them.
0: Right. Yeah. Like. Uh, yeah. I I do vaguely remember you know Spice One saying something like that back then, but. I also, like, remember, like, your records being, that record being the first, like, one of the first to say something like that also, but yours was a parody of it all. Right, and maybe,
1: maybe, uh, you, you, I don't know. I have no idea, but interesting nonetheless.
0: When you were sort of, like, speaking of that time, like, w- w- when you are part of that time when you were seeing Gangsta Rap sort of being ushered in into the music industry and then you're seeing a lot of the the rappers that kind of came out of it whether they're really, you know, living that life or not, you know. What was like sort of your, you know, your thoughts looking back to how gangsta rap got ushered into music and then sort of what it became years after?
1: What bothered me about about it was that um and I would, I, maybe, maybe, maybe the powers that be didn't realize this at the time, but maybe they did. Um, it was almost like they were trying to neutralize what Public Enemy and Boogie Down Productions and Poor Righteous Teachers and X Clan and Paris and other groups were doing. By empowering our young people in a way, making them making making education important, being smart was a cool thing. Um, knowing your history was a cool thing, um, and it was almost like when the black exploitation movies came out. Um, like it was a way to suppress um, the 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 I'm black and I'm proud movement. And, and and to keep that movement suppressed and push something else out there that was a little bit more uh, I don't know if negative is the right word, but certainly in the opposite of, 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 of what was pride and education and intelligence, um, I just, it just, it was just, it it was bothersome to me that that became the law of the land. Every label now is trying to sign the next N.W.A. because N.W.A. was, they went platinum, they went double platinum, triple platinum, whatever they whatever number they did. And all of a sudden, every record label was trying to find the next N.W.A. and they were signing everything, regardless if it was good or not. It's like, if you could say on a record, they were trying to sign them, and a lot of that stuff, you know, it infiltrated the minds of the young people in the community, and it infiltrated a lot of musicians and guys were going to the studio, basically saying stuff on records that they had, they just thought it was it sounded cool. It was crazy. It was crazy. You could sound on a record. The more guns you could rap about, made you. Made you hardcore. Maybe you would go platinum. Maybe you sell a lot of records, like N.W.A. And there was just so much fakery going on during that time. Like, mm-hmm. like a, a lot of these guys were just saying it to say it. It's, it goes on today. It's still happening today. But it just was a frustrating time for me. And so I took my frustrations and I, because I knew I wasn't going to be that. I wasn't going to try to do that. And so I, I was frustrated. So I put my frustrations into a project and. That's what was the slaughterhouse.
0: As we sort of wind down this interview, uh you mentioned earlier that back in two thousand that you were uh, diagnosed with MS. How you are how are you feeling these days and how have you been able to maintain your health?
1: I feel good. I feel good. Um I uh made some diet a lot of dietary changes over the last, you know, fourteen or so years, just Slowly and gradually, dietary changes. Super active. Um, go to the gym three to four days a week. Uh, I, I started running again. I haven't I didn't run this year yet, but I started running again. Um, I hadn't run since high school, you know, football. And uh, I just stay really active. I stay. I keep my mind busy, um, and I keep my body moving. I'm not, I'm not in the gym trying to lift a whole bunch of weights. That's not that's not really the goal. The goal is to have physical dexterity to be able to move and walk and, you know, touch your toes and jump up in the air and land and have balance and so I focus on all of those things and I just think the um the diet the diet changes and the working out are the are the probably the two most important Parts of why I've been able to kind of sustain my quality of life. Um, there are people that have had it as long as me that are already in wheelchairs, and so I'm I'm blessed to still be able to jump around on stage like a knucklehead and have fun <laughs> and, and entertain people at the same time.
0: What's your uh, What's your regular dietary schedule like? You know, what What do you eat? What do you don't eat?
1: Um, I eliminated all the white foods. That was the first one of the first things I did. So white rice, white white flour, white uh white sugar, white pasta. I eliminated all of those things from my diet. That was one of the first things I did. Um I started doing brown everything. Brown bread, brown pasta, um brown rice. Um I uh started reading the backs of labels. And and found out that high fructose corn syrup was in everything.
0: Oh yeah, it um, is.
1: <laughs> so I started eliminating high fructose corn syrup from completely. Like I don't I don't touch anything that has that in it. Even if it says corn syrup, I won't I won't drink it or or eat it. Um, I uh, so those are like the kind of the early things that I started to do. Um, more recently. Uh, five years ago, I stopped eating beef. One year ago, I stopped eating chicken and now I just eat fish, but I'm only, I eat fish maybe two, twice a week, maybe three times at the most a week. And the rest of my meals are either vegetarian or vegan meals. Uh, I believe I'm on my way to, to vegan lifestyle. Um, I just know that because when I'm on the road, you know, eating vegan can be difficult just because eating out a lot and you don't know what's what they're preparing stuff with. And yeah, yeah, when you deal when you're dealing with language barriers and things of that nature, it's kind of hard to communicate. Um, well, can you not use butter to cook it, or like some of those kinds of things are a little bit tricky. So, um, I see myself definitely being vegetarian, um, maybe long term, um, being vegan. But all all of those things have made a difference.
0: If there is some sort of a you know, nugget of knowledge, you know, a lesson that you could sort of extract out of your life or career that anybody listening to this, whether they know who you are or or a music artist, whatever they do, that they could extract from your life and apply it to their own life, what would sort of that lesson be?
1: Um I always tell aspiring artists to make music your plan B. Um, and that's the, that's the example that I lived by. I was in college. I rapped, but I was in college. Um, I got my degree the year after I got my degree was when I went first walked into a studio and actually started recording songs. And, um, Had music not worked out, because in most cases music doesn't work out for people. Music is a lottery ticket, you know. It's a lot of people playing, but very few people actually hit. And so, had music not worked out for me, I had a degree. I was gonna, I was gonna go into marketing and get a job in advertising, and I was gonna be writing, you know, Budweiser commercials or something. Um, <laughs> But um, it it happened to work out for me. But I always tell these young aspiring artists that make music your plan B. Have, have your plan A in place. And a lot of these kids, it's like sports or oh, sports didn't work out. I didn't get a scholarship. Um, music. And they just go right to music. That's like the next thing. Um, and, and none of them think about a long-term career a long-term quality of life. They think that if they stay at it long enough and keep writing rhymes and keep recording joints, eventually it's going to happen for them. And I got bad news for them. It doesn't eventually happen for everybody. And um, if you if you make music your, your one and only plan and it doesn't work out, you're gonna be living with your mother. You're going to be 40 years old, and uh,
0: it's not gonna be a good look. Good, good, good. Yeah, I like to end, uh, end any of my interviews with the same question: Who is somebody that's been a part of your life or career that I could realistically interview for this podcast that would have some good stories or lessons to tell?
1: Um, wow, it's a lot of people. Um. I would say Strickland, if you're talking about, cause he came into my. I met him in 2000, and he he came with me on the Disposable Arts tour, and ever since that tour, oh one, we've been we've been on the road together ever since. So he's been a part of the kind of the new beginning phase of my career from Disposable Arts forward, and uh, he has a lot of memories about uh, those days and the last 17 years of of being on the road with with me and he can definitely, uh, he definitely be a good person to talk to.
0: That's what's up. That's up. All right. It's been great talking with you. If anybody wants to find out more information about you or listen to any of your projects, where can they go online?
1: Well, um, my Facebook is master ace official. Um, my Twitter is at master ace and my Instagram is at Master Ace Picks, Pics Um, You can catch me on any of those, and um, you can find my music on really all the digital outlets pretty much. And H um, H V H H V dot D E. They put out my most recent album, and they have it on vinyl, CD, and cassette as well as digitally. Um, I will not promote streaming sites, although some of my music is on streaming sites. I won't be promoting those.
0: Oh yeah! And before we go, um, before we get out of here, you do have a new album coming out uh, with Marco Polo, correct? Yes. What's the What's the status on that?
1: It is being mixed. Um, we are we're at the artwork phase and the mixing phase, and. It's, we have photos, everything's taken. We're just trying to pull together an album cover and um, we're close. It's, it's, if we hand it in, we're supposed to hand it in August 11th. Let's see what happens. If we do, then it'll be out in October.
0: Awesome. Can't wait to hear that. It's, it's, it's been great talking with you. You've been one of my uh, favorite MCs of all time. Somebody that always, you know, just definitely wows me and inspires me anytime I hear a project from Thanks. you. So it was great talking with you.
1: Thank you, man.
0: So that was my interview with Master Ace. Um, if you caught the end of the of his interview, he mentioned that he has an album coming out with Marco Polo. It looks like they have put a release date on that since we did that interview. And it looks like that, inter, that, uh, that album, which is called A Brooklyn Story, is due out on November 9th, 2018. So be on the lookout for that. And all sorts of links that I'll have in the show notes at podcast.com where you could follow Master Ace online to be aware of everything that he has going. And definitely, if you have never heard Master Ace before, go listen to something, anything. It really doesn't matter. Go on Spotify or whatever and listen to any one of his albums. He's been so influential to hip-hop and so many MCs. And when you listen to his albums... He is the person who has influenced other ones you're gonna hear you're gonna hear him sound you're gonna hear like, oh, that sounds like so and so that sounds like so and so. They were influenced by master ace and he I know he was very humble about it in our interview, but he's definitely been one of the most influential hip hop artists hip hop m c s to ever grace the microphone, so it was super. Super cool, and I was super honored to be able to interview him for episode 100. And hopefully, I can will be able to talk with other hip hop artists that have been as influential to hip hop as Master Ace. So, thank you, Master Ace, for being on Fresh as the Word. So, without further ado, let's get on to the Fresh as the Word Fresh Pick of the Week. This episode's pick is the new album. Cerebral Apex from the Detroit hip-hop artist Novelis, a member of the group Clear Soul Forces. Novelis is a bit of a pioneer in his own right by paving his own lane. While he dives into your classic hip-hop boom-bap sounds, he injects his own interest in his rhymes. The album is based off a manga book that Novelis is currently writing and would love for this to be the soundtrack one day to the anime form of it. Novelist is the type of artist that wants to use hip hop to bridge the gap with like the nerd fandoms and art forms out there. And Cerebral Apex is a great effort in bridging that gap in a very cool way where it's accessible to audience of all sorts and all ages. So if you want to, you know, hear Cerebral Apex, I definitely have it embedded and linked up in the show notes for at an episode 100 at dot com. And before we get out of here, I definitely want to give a shout out to Knox Money, Bang Belushi, and Follow Mouth for the theme music for Fresh of the Word. And I definitely want to remind you how you can support the podcast. You can always go to freshofthepodcast.com and share any of the links that you see on the website on any of your social media platforms. And you can also subscribe to Fresh of the Word on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, MixCloud, Google Play, and TuneIn. Just type in Fresh of the Word. It should come up. Click subscribe or follow or whatever it says. And please, if you can, leave a rating and a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. would definitely help out the, the show and to further grow it. You can follow me online at Twitter and Instagram at Kelly Omega Fresh, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash kfresh. And then also you can follow Fresh of the Word online on Twitter on FITW Podcast and Instagram at Fresh of the Word Podcast and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Fresh of the Podcast. So that's been episode 100. Thank you for taking this journey with me. Later on this week, episode 101 with Detroit techno pioneer Carl Craig. Until then, goodbye and good night. Fresh, is the word.